To paraphrase from the book Outrider by Ann Waldman, the outrider is not an outsider, but someone, maybe even an outlaw, who rides parallel to the mainstream, is the shadow and the conscience of the mainstream, a spiritual insider practiced in negative capability who travels where the mainstream can't go. Welcome to Outrider Live Words and Music Number 4. Today's show was recorded in front of a live audience outdoors at a picnic in late summer. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us and give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or at the homepage, jquinmalott.podbean.com. Welcome to Outrider Live, words and music number four. This is the cookout show featuring uh, Catherine Dryden and John Jenkinson. Outrider Live, of course, is an offshoot of the Outrider podcast, my literary show about literary things, and I am your host, Jason Quinn Malott. I won't bore you with all the gory details, but you can find the Outrider podcast and previous live shows by subscribing to the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or straight from our host, Podbean, at jquinnmalott.podbean.com. You can also keep track of all the literary doings I'm involved with by going to my website, jquinnmalott.com. Something is always in the works, such as the upcoming seven-part series on toxic masculinity tropes with the writer, theatrical stunt coordinator, burlesque performer, and all-around badass friend from graduate school, Jen Zukowski. We'll get right to the uh, introductions. Catherine Dryden earned her MFA in fiction at Wichita State University. Her short stories have been published in various literary journals, including American Literary Review, So to Speak, Sulphur River Review, Alligator Juniper, and Pocket Rocket. Several of her stories have been nominated for Pushcart Prizes, and she was awarded Alligator Juniper's National Prize for Creative Nonfiction. After a longish hiatus from writing in order to quit smoking and gain weight, she's resumed writing with a focus on travel writing and creative nonfiction. She's married to John Jenkinson. John Jenkinson earned his MFA at Wichita State University and his PhD at the University of North Texas. A past winner of an AWP Discovery Award, a Balticon Science Fiction Poetry Award, John served as Poetry Fellow at the Milton Center and now teaches creative writing and literature at Butler Community College. His poems have appeared in The Georgia Review, Green Mountain Review, Passages North, Quarterly West, Rattle, 32 Poems, Visions, as well as three chapbooks. His full-length book, Rebecca Orders Lasagna, was published by Woodley Press at Washburn University. He's currently reinvented himself as a singer, songwriter, and guitar player, specializing in songs for academics. His songs are featured in his daughter's thesis and his son's dissertation. Children, especially his grandchildren, and lovers. He's married to Catherine Dryden. Here we go. Well, I'd, uh, speaking for everyone on this stage, I'd like to... Uh, Thank Jason Quinn Malott for his extraordinary contributions to the literary arts, including his own novel, and the fact that he is a generous-hearted person who is not fixated on his own career, but unlike so many artists, he's actually interested in, in the work of other people and in 
uh, processing that out into the world, which is, I think, just an extraordinary thing. And I can't thank him enough for that. I I really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank uh, Eunice for providing this venue for us tonight and for, you know, pushing the sun over out of the way the way she's done and uh, made it pretty pleasant up here. Nick Wagner here beside me is uh, a man who needs no introduction, one would hope, but uh, he probably does. He is uh, the fiddler about town of choice for a great many musicians, and I'm just frankly really lucky that uh, that I knew him uh, way back when, before I even touched a guitar, and that he still consents to come around and, and humor me and to generally make me sound better by... Uh, filling in a lot of gaps and covering gaffes and, you know, making suggestions for uh, how to put things together. But he can't play worth a shit. So there, yeah, yeah, there is that problem. Uh, at any rate, uh, really, really grateful for having him out here. Uh, he and his wife, Vicki, wherever she went, uh, who used to be right over there, uh, perform around town as the Wag Nerds, uh, a name for which they will never be forgiven. And uh, then, of course, he does a lot of spot playing for uh, basically anyone who needs some some dynamic fiddle playing or cello playing or bass playing or the occasional mandolin or guitar gig. I mean, he covers, covers the waterfront. He plays a mean triangle as well. <coughs> I also should thank you all for coming out here. I had expectations of seeing maybe, you know, like Kathy sitting out there, and that would be it. Uh, and, and Heather, who I, I'm very sorry, I just, just kind of jumped right over you. You are the, the, the technological brains behind a lot of this podcast business, as I understand, and, uh, or as I don't understand, be more frank about it. So thank you so much also. I'm going to read a poem, uh, appropriately, I suppose, titled The August Patio. Uh, It's actually sort of a love poem for my mother. The August Patio. Such things my mother knew. How humid summer spread a quilt across the alfalfa fields at night. Or why cicadas screeched their rumor after the sun lay buried in the ground. I knew nothing. Shy of kindergarten, but long susceptible to faith, I stood below the cusp of Leo and the Virgin, and on our patio, beneath the plum-washed nightfall's looming flood, the constellations loosing their silver stories in the hushed heavens older than the speech of men. Mother quietly began a splash of poetry, her modest declamation for the namesake of the red brick school I had soon attend half days in the autumn. Little orphant Annie and the hell-bound children borne away by grinning goblins. Unstylish now, but Riley knew to tell a story that compels a child to listen, and mother, 
her shadowed face leaning closer through her voice, her star-spanked eyes glistening into my stark thrall was turning something over. The way words lick our lips, the way they shape our lives, the way she loved with every quaver and growl, each stiff hair on my tight nape, the goblin's rasp, my startled nightbird chirp. There's a song called Your Window. If I need a reason to rap upon your window, I'll say the Spanish army is down on that river levee. And if your daddy's sleeping, I'll crawl inside your window. You'll be too by that old radio You were born to the manor I was born in the dead of night But it really doesn't matter The lights off your eyes soft and everything's right Loving 
Thank you. This is a short story that I wrote a long time ago, and I was going to read something new, but, you know, why do that? Um, it's a short story I wrote, but then John wanted us to have something we could both do at a conference, and so he took the short story and he um, turned it into a poem. He put, he put it into um, pentameter. So it is now, you know, this sort of contemporary Homeric epic <laughs> of sorts <laughs> that doesn't even begin to live up to that. But anyway, it's, it's a, just a little thing. We've only done it once before at that conference. And um, before I start it, I want to give a shout out to two of my um, dearest and oldest friends that are here, Judy and Majida. <laughs> and also Olivia, um, Majida's granddaughter. It's just coincidence. They were visiting me this weekend. And we will all soon be going to our 50-year class reunion. So um, I don't know, for whatever it's worth, you know. We're like looking back, I guess, for at that stage, maybe. Maybe we're looking forward still. <laughs> anyway, this story also includes a little shadow of another very dear friend of ours um, in that... I used that friend's mother's name in the story. The story's totally fiction, but um, it's, it's cobbled together of a little bit of everybody I know. The dead mother in it is Mary Beth, who is Janet's mother. So anyway, um, father stands at the base of the stairs and yells my mother's name. My mother passed away six years ago, but I no longer remind him. He's blind in his left eye. An accident when he was three years old. A slip that left a cloudy scar across his scissored pupil. I come to him from the left. He doesn't see. His yellow shirt is tucked into his pants, baggy and sweat-stained. I try to remember when he last changed clothes. Monday. Three days passed. Each night, I used to sneak into his room and gather up his dirty clothes like eggs. But now he sleeps completely dressed, flat on his back, a mummy whose toes stick straight up in the air. He keeps his shoes and socks on, too, and stays asleep a step ahead of me. Mary Beth's not here, I say. My mother's name sounds old-fashioned when I speak it aloud. Although alive, she seemed a modern woman. I find her difficult to bring to mind the way she was before her sickness came. I only see a string of photographs, my mother at the beach, her straps untied, another in my father's arms, her dress flown up around her legs, one eye behind a flip of dark blonde hair. He holds her like you'd bear a bride across her only threshold, but there's no door, only the Grand Canyon, cooling its red and yellow heels behind them. We were only goofing, Mother told me, and yes, they both wear smiles, but still, the canyon gapes there, real. The guardrail doesn't show. My mother in the photograph is young, a reckless girl, still beautiful and younger than I am now. 
I find more recent pictures, but they are just a series of hairstyles, page boy, bouffant, French twist, and holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, with nothing sharp enough to bring her image back full force to me. Mary Beth is not here, I repeat. Father acts as if he doesn't hear me, tilts his deep unseeing eye my way. While I move closer to him, turn my gaze to follow his attention up the stairs, like a cop's flashlight searching for the lost. He waits with such a faith that I believe my mother will come flying down the stairs, a silk scarf clinging from her ivory throat, late for the Christian Women's Study Club. The ringing telephone surprises me, but not my father. Mary Beth, he says. I pick up the extension in the kitchen and listen with my hand across the mouthpiece. It's not Mary Beth, explains my ex. I think of hanging up, but I haven't heard from Pete since moving here three months ago to stay with Dad. I would love to forget him, but I can't. Pete writes to our daughter, five long letters now, from five new cities. Pete sells things. He's always on the road. I can't really say that things have changed since the divorce. He's almost always gone. Listen, Ed, I need to talk to Annie. My father only knows me half the time. These days, he calls me Rachel, perhaps a girl, cousin, someone from his family. Years ago, he quarreled with his father. I only meet his side at funerals. Pete, I interject. But father will not budge. Mary Beth, he says. Jesus Christ, Annie, what's going on? Where's Tina? Pete is flustered with us now. It's okay, I say. But do not know if I'm addressing Pete or my own dad. Just get home, my father answers, right before he hangs the phone up, hard and fast. I can't talk right now. I chant it like a mantra. I want to talk to Pete, and yet I don't. I hear him take a breath and sigh. Tina's at tap, and now you've upset Daddy. I'm faking it. I don't want to talk about Tina. She told me she could go and live with Pete before she slammed the door and stomped across the porch. We can talk later, Pete. I called now, and I want to talk now. I really have to go, I answer, and hang up. In the living room, my father flips the channels on our television set. I hold my hand in front of me and wait, but the telephone does not ring back. Two. I can't find the goddamn baseball game, my father shouts. The TV channels blast short bursts of each show passing, one by one, as he runs through the channels. The only things my father can sit through are baseball games. Just a minute, Dad, I answer. I've learned to be crafty just like him. While I shuffle through the stack of videos, he kicks his chair back. He's placed his faith in me. I slip in a Sports Illustrated video, the best of baseball, the 1985 World Series, a game that ended 20 years ago, but Father doesn't care. He wanders time without a real concern for linearity. It's just the present that confuses him. A young George Brett crowds the plate, the California kid. He swings the bat as if it were a part of him, a pine tar grip. I bring my father a glass of bud. He takes it without looking. 
a hell of a baseball player, my father says. For now, he has forgotten Mary Beth. My father once played baseball before the fight with his father, before he married my mother, had me, and settled down as editor of our 12-page Coffeeville journal. The day he met my mother, he was playing Bush League ball in southeast Kansas, a one-eyed third baseman teamed with Mickey Mantle and the Miners. Your father was a dreamboat then, Mom whispered in the week before she died. Her voice fluttered like a feather. It seemed to rise out of her pillow and not from her at all. They won the league that year. She raised her head. Please, don't talk, I said. But I was wrong. Talk, I think. Three. I'm fixing tea when Mrs. Woodrow knocks. She lives next door. Her only son was wild, two years ahead of me in school, but now Woody has calmed down and turned to caps and crowns. His dental office overlooks the city from the sixth floor of the bank. The fluffy crowns of sycamore and elm spread out before him like a leafy lawn. We all ate dinner with her once when we first moved back to town, Tina and I scooting daddy like a child between us. Such a shame she'd volunteered, but didn't say another word. My father wiped his plate clean with a piece of Wonder Bread, then stuffed it in his mouth, family style. Mrs. Woodrow bragged on Woody to Tina, but in her stories, Woody was a Boy Scout or an athlete named Dennis. At first, I didn't know who she was talking about. Annie and Dennis were always together, Tina. Annie is just like a daughter to me. It caught me by surprise. I have never thought of Mrs. Woodrow as my mother. Annie, I think it's time you went on home, she'd say when Woody and I got loud as gangsters, rocket ships, or bombs. She's nice, said Tina, as we left the Woodrows, her house and all. Everything seems fixed. I loved her calling me Annie all night, I say, to shift the subject, and I knew what she meant. Pictures of Woody's daughter covered the walls, most of them taken at Kmart. I recognized the backdrops, Easter's grassy meadow and a fake fireplace hung with plastic greens for Christmas. They posed through several cycles, springtime, summer, autumn, winter, the girls growing larger picture by picture. Once I would have mocked them, but order now appeals to me. A wedding picture of Woody and his wife on the coffee table. I'll let Mrs. Woodrow in before her knocking distracts my father's baseball game. Baseball used to make my father noisy, but now he watches quietly, concerned. Tea, I offer, without encouraging. No, dear. She looks over my shoulder and tries to locate Daddy or Tina. Is that Mary Beth's good tea set, she says, as if she has caught me stealing. Dirty dishes fill the sink and the waste can lid gapes her excess trash propping it up. Mary Beth kept everything so nice. When I was young, Mrs. Woodrow fought with mother. She'd call the police if parties grew too loud or if too many cars were parked along the street. And once, when I was climbing out of my bedroom window, Mrs. Wood asked, I laughed, and duck walked across the room. Mother would have none of my behavior and marched with me next door to make amends, although, as I insisted, Mrs. Woodrow wouldn't have a clue without my mom. Later, they developed an odd friendship. 
pale iced tea and gossip on the patio, Chesterfields and Luckies, a pack of cards. Mother never explained her change of heart, and I got used to seeing them together. But Mrs. Woodrow still can make me nervous, though Mother never kept the tidy house. We have more clean dishes in the cupboard, she'd holler at my father from her gin game. Still, I pour detergent in the sink and start the dishes while Mrs. Woodrow talks. Dennis mows my lawn each Tuesday evening. I'm sure he would be happy to catch yours. I haven't talked to Woody since returning, though I've watched him mowing from the window. In high school, Woody taught me cigarettes and booze. I sneaked them in my record case, squeezed between the Beatles and the Kinks. You can't sip it, he explained. You gulp. One tornado-ridden evening, we hid up in his treehouse, drinking cognac and coke. With every flash of lightning, Woody's face appeared more beautiful, then disappeared. He counted out the seconds till the thunder, then he kissed me. I helped him to unbutton my blouse, though we were never lovers, quite. Mrs. Woodrow kept her eye on us from that night on, but it was only longing I lusted for. I agree to let Woody mow the lawn. I know it's a problem, I say. My voice a shade from penitential, soft. Four. Tina comes home. She's ready to talk in her black leotards, self-consciously graceful, pointing her toes so her calves flex as she walks. Your father called, I say. He's got a new girlfriend, Tina answers. He wrote me about her. Before I respond, my father wanders in, shoulders hunched, feet shuffling across the linoleum. Seeing Tina perks him up. Annie, he says, I didn't hear you come in. Tina rolls her eyes. She'd like a normal home. Between Pete's girlfriend and my dad, there's nothing left for her. Tina calls my father him. Why shouldn't I, she asks. He never calls me anything but Annie. I tell her she has homework. I'm tired of this. She flashes me a Pete-like look. I'm not the problem here, and it's Friday night, if no one remembers. She pauses. You're getting as bad as him. But still, she heads up to her room and slams the door. I glance across at Dad. You need a bath, I tell him. I believe I'll just go to bed, he answers, yawning. I'm far too tired to start a fight with him. He flips through each compartment of his wallet. Here they are. He hands me two old pictures. One of them is me, a studio print. I must be four years old, a cowgirl hat and red boots stitched with white. The other one, a funny one, shows him and mother posed behind a painted cutout of a gangster in his mall. The gangster holds his tommy gun and wears a black fedora tilted above the cutout hole that frames his face. The mall is all legs, a slit skirt and high heels. Inside the painted face holes, I discern, barely, my parents' youthful features. Father turns without a word and goes to bed. His absence more familiar than his presence, my father is a mystery to me. 
When I was growing up, he kept strange hours at the paper. Annie barely knows you, my mother used to say. You're never home when she's awake. She would recount these tiffs to me, but hazily, his absences lent him more authority. Your father will hear about this, my mother would declare when she was mad at me. I never grasped that he would hear of my misdeeds from her. I thought she meant that he, like God, would simply know the way the newspaper knew, or neighbors. I never quite grew out of that idea. So when I started getting funny calls from him about six months ago, I didn't know quite what to think. The first time, I jumped out of bed at 2 a.m. and counted ten rings before I dared pick up the phone. Annie, my father whispered. I nearly hung up, but recognized his voice. I don't want to wake your mother, he said, his soft voice distant. Each night, a different variation. Where did you say your mother was, he asked. I can't seem to remember. It's not the sort of thing you get used to. So I told Tina we would have to move to be with him. He's my father, I explained. I need to take care of him. Oh, yeah, she said. Too bad you don't feel that way about Dad. Five. I didn't tell the whole darn thing to Pete. That he's getting old, they said. He's not himself. Pete did not object too much. He's busy with his new life and thought it would be cheaper with me living at Daddy's house. Pete thinks about money. He's two months behind on child support and counts on my forbearance. I don't tell this to Tina. Sometimes it's hard remembering just who of us knows what. Tina, though, put up a bigger fight. Between my mother's death and my father's calls, I had only made it back home twice. Pete never wanted to go, and Tina was always involved in school-related stuff. And then, my marriage falling apart, I put things off. Tina didn't empathize with Dad. He's practically a stranger, she declared. Besides, she'd already been fitted for her costume, a pantherette in a short green skirt that lifts above her matched green panties when she twirls, and a spandex top with silver sequins that shoot across her chest like sparks. She practiced can-can kicks in her room to a brass band's blaring version of You Really Got Me, but closed her bedroom door the afternoon she caught me watching her. You'll see us at the first game. She was full of plans. My father used to dance, I say, before the bedroom door clicked shut, like Fred Astaire. That's what Mother said, and even Tina pulled the door a crack and frowning said she wished that she could know a boy like that. At halftime during football games, the daring pantherettes prance. Their warm-up jackets sport green panthers springing across their backs, just like the football players. Nothing I could say would make her want to move to Coffeeville. They call their football team the Red Ravens, she said, before she slammed the door again. They named the town itself after coffee, she shouted, as a postscript through the battened door. You really got me thunders through the house while I pack us into labeled boxes, kitchen, linens, knickknacks, pictures, books. This never would have happened if Dad were still here, Tina said when I shoved a stack of empty boxes into her room. 
She blames me, but I stay mum and do not talk about it. The painted gangster and his painted mall curl their painted arms around each other, but I can't tell about my mom and dad. They stare straight ahead and do not smile. I don't recall the picture of myself, although I do remember the red boots, a Christmas gift the year I yearned to shoot like Annie Oakley. My memory grows tricky. Six. My father always has been secretive, but now, his memory slipping, I glimpse his hidden life. My mother was the talker, although even she grew reticent toward the end. When my father's mother died, the three of us sat in the front pew, mixed up with aunts and uncles, cousins I knew by sight but hadn't spoken to in years. We walked in single shuffling file before the casket where grandmother lay, as silent and formal as us. Afterward, we suffered a kind of roll call. Grandfather called us by name, and we shook his hand. Flighty and frivolous amid their silent gloom, mother fussed over cousins and hugged the stiff ants. Leaving, grandfather handed my father a package. She never could bear to use them again, but she couldn't throw them away, neither. You ought to have them. My father slowly unwrapped the package. He knew what was inside. These are the scissors I poked my eye out with, he said, opening and closing the blades, scraping them there into deepening quiet. Mother dropped them into her purse, and I never knew what the quarrel had been about. Maybe mother knew. When grandfather died, she stayed at home and cooked a pot of stew. Seven. Snarling through the grass, the lawnmower wakes me. I pull on jeans and a BB King t-shirt, brush my hair 100 careful strokes. It used to be as blonde as Tina's hair, but turned to brown after she was born. I wear it long and straight, to my waist almost, but worry that I've aged too much for hair that long. Perhaps I'm turning into an old girl who wears interesting import clothes. Although I don't work out at all, I'm thin and exercise my faith in cigarettes. In the front yard, Mrs. Woodrow talks to Woody, pointing to spots around the yard. Her garden gloves are oversized and green, like cartoon hands or else some bad disease. I practice smiling at the bedroom window as if I've turned my clock back to 16 and dance a little to the radio that sings from the other side of Tina's door. Downstairs, my father sits at the kitchen table, wearing the clothes that he wore yesterday. I pour him a bowl of checks and rush outside. Woody buzzes the mower around our yard but shuts the motor off when he sees me. I wonder when we'd bump into each other, Woody says. Mom told me you'd move back. I smile just like I practiced and say nothing. I've seen your daughter a couple of times. She looks just like you at her age. We laugh at this. It's too corny, and Woody blushes. It's his turn to be tongue-tied now. Tina, I say, my unhappy daughter. 
Woody looks puzzled. His curly hair is black as comic book hair, but he has grown a paunch in recent years. As if he knows just what I'm thinking, he sucks his gut in and taps the lawnmower's plastic handle. I picture him tapping on people's teeth that way. The house, I shrug, and daddy. It's too creepy for her. She wants everyone to think she lives with a mom and a dad in a normal house. Woody smiles at me. His teeth are perfect. I thought about mowing your lawn before, he says. It's nice. One thing I don't have to do. Looking at the yard depresses me. Remember back when we were kids, I ask? Woody laughs uneasily, not knowing where I might take this. Of course I do. Tell me about it, I say. Tell me about me. I'm waiting for a version I remember. I want order, Kmart pictures, changes as predictable as seasons, innings. You haven't changed, he says, but I don't trust his words. As he talks, he moves in closer. His hands are pale with slender fingers that slip in and out of mouths all day. I don't believe that I could stand it, all those mouths, each one pink and demanding. I've got to go, I say, but Woody looks as if he thinks I may have something more to volunteer. I shrug as if this is explanation enough. At the door, I turn around. I wait a minute or two and think about the way things disappear. Marriage, people, memory. How nothing survives unbroken. Shards of pottery or the headless, armless forms of ancient statues. Eight. Inside, I hear music. Benny Goodman and his fluid clarinet. Memory of you. Lionel Hampton's xylophone and then a moody guitar. When Benny breaks back in, I follow the music into the living room. The furniture is pushed against the wall, the coffee table balanced on the sofa, the rug a long cylinder out of the way. In the center of the room, Tina and Daddy are dancing. Tina leans back into his arms as they turn gracefully around the room. She smiles when she sees me. Rachel, she says, in a dreamy voice, before my father can spin her away. He dances in perfect time to the music. When you're married to a fiction writer, you never know where your life is going to go. In my case, it always goes somewhere much better than I had anticipated. Our first granddaughter, Lucille, uh, lives in New York and when she was about three, she learned a valuable lesson. Now this poem is entitled, How the Baby Lucille Learned to Busk. The last nice day before the blizzard struck us dumb, we trooped downstairs into the subway station, 
picking our way through this small debris, paper cups, newspaper remnants, the occasional bottle propped against the tiles, slide our metro cards and push through the turnstiles. Lucille loves the buskers, but at this Washington Heights station, we find none. Her favorite job is tipping them. She'll dance a lick or two, wave, and fetch a dollar from her Rebecca to drop into an old felt hat, a guitar case, or even an open hand. They always treat her sweetly, speak to her, throw in an extra lick or two on harmonica or fiddle, tell her how adorable she looks, how well at two she jigs and ham bones and sachets. She learns to watch for them at midtown stops. On the trains themselves, it's either rambling preachers or troubadours. We don't tip the preachers, abusive and reeking of their own righteousness. But today, one of our North Manhattan favorites, Enrique, jumps into our car, straight from Mexico, it seems. His pawn shop Yamaha bedecked with shiny stickers, his voice, as usual, penetrates the subway rumble while he fingers some nimble comping riffs to decorate the classic campesino songs. La Llorona, Jurame, El Tren. Lucille loves them all. Home from our excursion, Lucille snatches up her plastic ukulele, climbs onto the couch where Daddy sits, pondering his own opinion of the latest film he's watched. He is a critic of the art, his words a minor siren song breathed huskily into America's electronic ears. She whacks the strings, flailing with unusual vigor and persistence, throws in a snatch of Yip's lyrics. Lucille, says Daddy, that's beautiful. She stops, looks up, holds out her tiny cupped hand. Give me money. So this song is called, it, you know, in light of that poem, I suppose, it's called You're Spending Money. why I'm saving all my money, every copper penny, saving all my money for you. Air. Never on that welfare, cause I bust my butt, and if I get you something, gal, it's never quite enough. You take me to the jewelry store, pick out the biggest rock. That's why I'm saving all my money, every copper penny, saving all my money for you. You could make a pauper of a billionaire, 
make a fool of Scrooge McDuck. When men see you coming, they all stand and cheer, cause you look like a million bucks. poem was uh, sort of a companion piece to the, uh, the August Patio poem, uh, a couple of poems about my hometown of Independence, Kansas, uh, home of Harry Sinclair, among other luminaries, and uh, Mickey Mantle used to play minor league ball there, so that counts for something, right? Visiting a River Valley town. One law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Exodus 12:49. Along the murky vertigris, locust pods rust and rattle autumn's umber plunge. A troop of brownies crunch through drying weeds. The small zoo's prize-breeding pair of bison foraged prairie hay and old acorns. The patchy wool they shed in scraps all summer thickens with October and the flies last hurrah. Near a canvas-covered carousel, heart-shaped leaves collect in brittle heaps, cupped in the yellowing park's deserted bandshell. Presbyterian bells scour the air while a pair of groundsmen spar with clippers, trimming back a wild mulberry hedge. The school that spanked me as a child, Orphan Annie's school, James Whitcomb Riley Elementary, has taken its red bricks and disappeared, like William Inge's picnic or Abel, our first monkey astronaut. I do not live here anymore. And though the library fans its brass revolving doors open to me, the brown-eyed lady checking books no longer approves my reading. At dusk, a red-haired boy in coonskin cap and freckles pedals down the walk. 
his heavy, rust-pocked western flyer squawks, that he may drift like smoke above life's troubled lawns. I shape the riffling wind to fit his hands. I shoot him, a dalliance of girls whose fruit-smudged lips once pursed, disturbed beneath the shading elms. They will not come this way again, and I, pushed by urgencies that drive the leaves, must catch the last train whistle echoing west. These guys are getting pretty scarce now. I calculate my dad would probably be about 97, and he was, he was a young man when he went to fight the fascists. I'm going to tell you something. I'm an old man. I got old in time to fight the fascists, I think. So uh, let's consider it. It's a song called Willie Joe. I think you'll get the drift. They call him a bum, but he's one of the ones who help keep America free. From Saipan and Iwo, he came home a hero, start up his own family. In his peaceful new scene, he was still a Marine. His dreams were the hideous kind. The blood and the gore of that second world war had taken Chips were on the ground. He never let nobody down. He walked through the fires of hell. Just a human being. Now there's 60 years of frying. You don't understand. Well, he took a Position, filling out requisitions in an office three flights up downtown. But a nervous condition gave a bad premonition. The boss would not keep him around. When he tried to sleep nights, he relived the firefights. Wake with a scream and a the ghost of his fears fed on mill towns and beers till it blacked out and finally forget. Kick the bottle back and say a prayer for Willie Joe. 
G.I. alone and his wife took the home Willie was left with the car the jobs that he got he was quickly laid off but they knew him real good at the bar well with each passing breath the angel of death gave another sharp tug at his sleeve Without his dear bottle, he'd return to the battle. He spent his life trying to leave. Kick that bottle back and say a prayer for Willie Joe. You ain't half the man he once was, but he don't you know. shelter with some of the fellas who drift back and forth through the city. There's a few guys from Nam and they mostly stay bombed. They treat him all right out of pity. But the kids on the street, the gals that he meets, turn their eyes in disgust as he goes. subject of war 
I'll uh, end the poetry section here with the history of sleep, and then Nick will come back, and we'll, uh, we'll get a little happy, and we'll end with the mystery of love. Well, the history of sleep. Sleep opens within us an inn for phantoms. Gaston Bachelard. Part one. It hasn't worn the kind of clothes you would wear to snuggle in, bunny feet, drop panels, for years, but often works all night in bib overalls, strung from double-stitched loops, tools dangle over the sand-plugged eyes the world rubs, tossing from side to side, Beijing, New York, Beijing, never settling, sloshing the open beds like a colicky baby. Winken blinks and nods. Two, I know an all-night nurse who catches taxis home at sunup, falls in bed and passes into something short of slumber. Last night, she lost another customer to that light the dying see as they slam the door on pain. Turn away from mundane things like evergreen sprays at Christmas, air-soled shoes, bug zappers, chilly nights in sleeping bags. When this morning's rose-red burst of dawn hits her like a heart attack, her bones convulse to powder, and the taxi driver lends her a flurry of concern, then pours her a cup of joe from his thermos. It doesn't touch the cold spot in her heart, cannot reach the operation's failure, the frail gray body trundled on its chrome-infected gurney. She used to be a harder case, inured to death and illness, the black rage of the injured. A whistle calls the first shift to their tools, priests to their prayers, fools to other fools, and the night shift home to their unshaven lovers, their sleeping pills, and unrequited covers. Three, I'm married to a vet twice. The chump whiffed victory gas in a blown-up ammo dump in South Iraq that's made him cranky, a plume of hypertoxic Babylonian fumes. Now he doctors animals, ferrets, goats, the hundred mangy creatures children tote home to parents. The world of wagtails creeps into his office. He puts stray cats to sleep. I find him anything but boring. A kind of Nazi expediency frames his mind, and sleep, I think, is what he wishes for himself above all other earthly pleasures. But I won't let him go without a kiss, and one thing leads, as everybody says, to another until pretty soon it dawns on us we've loved all night, like teenagers in lust. As I drift, 
my head against his chest. He swears I'm the cat's pajamas. I get no rest. a monkey in a monkey tree I'd wiggle my banana till you'd fall in love with me that's what they call the mystery the mystery of love and if I was a dollar in a money tree I'd wriggle like a leaf until you'd take a snatch at me that's what they call the mystery the mystery say I'm blushing like that orchid down in the Brazilian forest way. You may say it's horrid, but I need a love that's torrid. Won't you pluck me now and fly away? Chinchillery, I'd shed my beautiful coat and hope you'd snuggle up with me. That's what they call the mystery, the mystery of love. The mystery, the craze philology. Some might say it's kind of an old philosophy. I don't know between you and me, it just might be zoology. Biology, oh gee, it just may be a little bit of Argosy, a little bit of Odyssey, the mystery of love. 
Thank you so much. So don't go anywhere. There's plenty of food. You guys haven't eaten all of it yet. And hang out, talk. Thanks for coming out. Thanks to John and Catherine and Nick for playing for us tonight. And it's turned out to be a lovely night, so please stay around as long as you like. Let's eat, let's drink, let's talk books or the weather or whatever. So hang out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Outrider Podcast will be back with more series and more live shows featuring great poets and writers performing with local musical acts from Wichita, Kansas. This show was recorded live. Event sound was recorded by me, Jason Quinn Malott, and the podcast was edited and produced by Heather Ann Eden.